Hello, I'm Eric Corman, Communications Director at League of Education Voters. In this podcast, we interview policymakers, partners, and thought leaders to spotlight education policies, research, and practices so that together we can create a brighter future for every Washington student. Educator diversity is a critical issue across Washington State and nationwide. In today's episode, we will discuss the importance of advancing educator diversity and learn about the Educators of Color Leadership Community, the ECLC, a program designed by the Puget Sound Educational Service District to support and retain educators of color through community building, culturally responsive mentoring and coaching, and professional learning that builds on strengths as an educator of color. Info at PSESD.org. Our guests today are Brooke Brown, the 2021 Washington State Teacher of the Year, Tamasha Amedi, Assistant Principal at Hazel Valley Elementary School in the Highline School District, Stephanie Gallardo, a Social Studies Teacher at Foster High School in the Tukwila School District, Denise Daniels, Director of Recruitment, Retention, and Workforce Development in the Auburn School District, Brad Brown, Executive Director of Kindergarten through Post-Secondary at the Puget Sound Educational Service District, and Eileen Yoshina, Director of Equity and Education at the Puget Sound Educational Service District and the facilitator of the Educators of Color Leadership Community. Brooke, Tamasha, Stephanie, Denise, Brad, Eileen, thank you so much for joining me. Why is educator diversity so important? Denise, go right ahead. I think there's a few different reasons. The first one that comes to my mind is for our students, the benefit of our students, right? Not only do we bring a different perspective to the table, we also allow them to see themselves in this profession, which they haven't always been able to do. There is a comfort level, I think, when students are able to see and connect with folks. And I think oftentimes people of color what I've seen tend to more easily build those relationships with those students. One of the biggest things I hear when students talk about, you know, what is the disconnect between them and their teachers and actually from staff members also, they don't really feel like they're able to have a connection, right? What I also find is, you know, it's an effort. You have to make an effort to make that connection. And I think for educators of color, it just, it's just a little bit easier and more natural for us to build those relationships. And then there's a learning learning from each other. My colleagues learn from me. I learn from them. So all of those different perspectives, I think, are really huge with educator diversity. That's one of the most important things to me that comes to mind. Yeah, thank you so much. I'd love to hear what it looks like on the ground, too. Stephanie, why do you believe that educator diversity is so important? Yeah, I think Denise really covered some foundational reasons why educator diversity is important. And there's something that I feel like we'd as educators also don't talk about why educator diversity is so important. And it's the fact that educators of color have vision. They have true vision for what the education system has to look like in the future in order to serve the needs of our young people. And we are the ones who are doing the work, right? Eileen is the one and a group of other educators were the ones who came up with the ECLC program that now forms the basis for so much of the work that we're doing. Educators of color have vision. And for me, that's one of the most important reasons why educator diversity is important because we have to have vision in order to see what the future looks like in education and understand that it can't look like it is right now. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And Stephanie, you just called out Eileen. Eileen, you are the facilitator of the Educators of Color Leadership Community. Why do you believe that educator diversity is so important? Well, 
everything that Denise and Stephanie both said. And to build on what Stephanie said, I think one of the things that I've really come to deeply appreciate in the couple of years I've had working with the ECLC is that educators of color really do things differently. And they do things in a way that challenges the norms of the system that have been harmful to students of color. And just by being themselves, by bringing their authentic selves into the classroom, they bring this incredible passion. They bring true authentic love for their students and their students' families. And they have a very organic way of teaching kids that is authentic and it's true to the way that their families would want them to be taught. And it just comes from this deep place of personal experience and deep, deep empathy. Yeah, I'd love to hear the perspective of an administrator and Tamasha as assistant principal in the Highline School District. What is your take on the importance of educator diversity? Yes to everybody. Everybody's right. I just want to hit home the fact that it is the inherentness of the authenticity of those educators of color that makes our school better having them here. This kind of bleeds into some of the other things I know we're going to be talking about later, But if educators of color come to us and have been processed through a system that makes them standardized, that holds them to a white lens and a white gaze, then when they come, it's no different than having a white educator who read all the right books. That's not what I'm interested in. And that's not what makes educators of color phenomenal. What makes them phenomenal is where they came from, how they grew up, who they are as authentic people. And that is a lot to figure out how to do when we live in a system that tells us we absolutely shouldn't be like that. We absolutely shouldn't act like that. We shouldn't be using our home language. We shouldn't be using uh, wearing our cultural clothes to school, right? For some of our educators, it took some unlearning to be like, we actually hired you because you speak like this, which isn't necessarily fitting into the norms of common core state standards for speaking and listening or reading and writing. But who you are, your authentic self is exactly what we need as a school to switch that vision work. Like Stephanie was saying, if we all come in super standardized, then I just get a watered down version of someone who might completely flip our script. I just want to shout out, we were looking at our data recently. We've been working on our data in any realm, not being racially predictable. We looked at our data for students who are written up for disciplinary things. When I started at this school as a teacher four years ago, we were overrepresenting Black students for disciplinary write-ups and severely underrepresenting Asian students and white students. As of now, everybody is within about 5% of where they actually are at the school, which is not ideal what we want is it to be the same or maybe zero but the trend is beautiful and we don't see that trend all the way across our district yet and i think a big reason why we're seeing that trend here at hazel valley is because there is power in the voices of our educators of color it's not just disciplinary policies it's not just district-wide mandates but the human beings who are in front of our kids are making decisions at a school level. And I, as an administrator, am listening and changing our systems based on what our educators of color are saying. That's amazing. Brad, uh, Brooke, is there anything you'd like to add? I would just agree with all of just the beautiful wisdom that 
I have the opportunity of being able to be in community with and listen and, and learn from. And I would just add to that one of the many things that educators of color bring into the space that's really unique is they allow students to be themselves as well. And so I think one of the best things as educators that we can do is be models for our students. One of the things that I'm really passionate about and really want to dispel is sort of this idea of the superhero myth. And so it's the idea of teachers as superheroes. And so I just wanna acknowledge that BIPOC educators we're here, we are extraordinary, but we're not superheroes, we're people too. And, and so really acknowledging that we've had to learn, we've had to do a lot of work to get to where we're at. And part of what we bring to the spaces when we are able to bring our full and authentic selves is we help our students to learn how to show up like that. We help our students to learn earlier in life what they can be, who they can be, how they can celebrate where they're from. There is no shame attached to any part of their identity. And I think that in and of itself is a gift. That's a gift that I wish I had received as a young person. And so for me, that's a gift that I wanna give to every single young person that I can encounter is just that you can be yourself 100% and who you are is enough period. You don't have to change. You don't have to be like anybody else. And that who you are is enough. Amen to that. And Brad, you've got something you'd like to say too? Yeah, I just keep it quick. And again, much praise and appreciation, especially for, as we lean into this opportunity of transition, we're so excited to be in certain spaces and lean the policy. There's some very basic things we know about human interactions in terms of love right? It is extremely difficult to teach at a high level of something that you don't love. I don't think I know and see that when we have educators of color that can help the system understand and model love, when they refer to students as miha, mijo, auntie, and understand that that is a part of feeling their spiritual cup, and so that their intellect can kick into another level. Because see, we take that for granted, but we can't because that's how we got here, right? If we look at through our history, it wasn't just this intellectual transaction that transpired. It was a very transformative way. And so when we talk about diversity, it, it is built, facilitated, watered, and just nurtured every day through love. And I think our administrators so that, you know, love and passion in a system needs to see and model what that looks like because one of the most strongest determinant of student success is how they feel about themselves, right? We have to build that up to let them know they belong. And to Brooke's point, just showing up full. Like you don't have to spend all day trying to coach, which and say the right thing as a student or as a teacher, because we know in different spaces, it can be different or as an administrator, right? And so that is something that is a fabric throughout the system. And so the more we show up, the more we can improve on the system through just those basic necessary things such as uh, love of self. Yeah, love is so key to everything. And, and I want to follow up on something that you just mentioned, Brad, which is policy. It makes me wonder what some of the barriers are to recruitment and retention of teachers of color. What are some of these factors that make it difficult for us to have more diversity in the educator workforce? I'm happy to start with that one also. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks, Denise. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to be that too, Greg. 
so it's very interesting because this is my second year in, in this role that I am to recruiting and retention. And I began the work a little bit in my previous role. So I was director of equity, outreach and family engagement because it's an equity issue, right? It's always been. And when I first got into my district, it's amazing. Honestly, when I started my district I was eight years ago, I was the only African-American person in my building. And in the role that I entered, a lot of educators were drawn to me. It's, you know, it's one of those things where staff sees you and they're like, oh my gosh, yes, we've got somebody in this position to help this. Parents see you, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, we've got somebody to help our kids. It's all of this, all of a sudden you're very visible. A lot of staff came to me and shared their experiences. And so as I'm in this role now, I recognize that retention was always comes before recruitment, in my opinion, because I'm going to have a really hard time going out and telling you, yes, person of color, sister, brother, come work in this district when I know that my people are hurting that are already here. So for me, one of the barriers are just creating a space where people of color feel safe and valued. And I love what, what Brooks said, as they are, right? Not showing up to fit into the system, but as they are. And, and education is a huge system. And, you know, so it's, it's really difficult and slow to change. And so that is one of the things that I find in cultures of spaces, right? Because, you know, every building has a different culture. Departments have different cultures, right? All of those things. And they're ingrained in how people do things. Letting people know it's not up to the person of color coming in to adapt to your system. It's really up to your system to try and make the person of color feel welcome and adapt to what they need. If that's what you were, if you want to retain our staff of color, that's kind of what I'm working through now. And I've been fortunate, you know, we now have affinity groups in our district, which is huge because not a lot of school districts, you know, are doing some of that work. And really that's key. And also making sure that other people come alongside, because I can't tell you how many times I said, well, why do we need affinity groups? People always want to work in our district. Why do we need to go in out and recruit people of color? Well, because there's lots of reasons, right? Because we're having this conversation. Obviously, to me, that means that you really don't have a lot of people of color in your circle. So, you know, so there's value to be brought by anybody that's different than you, you know, and if you want to keep doing the same thing you're doing, you're going to keep getting people that are the same people you've been getting. We want to make change for our students. We want to make change for our staff. We want to make change in our district, and our community. We're not going to do that by doing what we've always done. So those are some of the challenges is changing the minds and the hearts of people that don't see the need because it's comfortable for them. It's always been comfortable for them. They don't want to be uncomfortable. That's another one of the barriers to that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Eileen, Stephanie, Tamasha, Brad, anything you'd like to add? Brooke? Yeah, I would love to add in my school, when I started five years ago, we had I would say anywhere between 15 and 18 educators of color in my school, which is a really high amount for a school. That's a really high amount. Like you don't find that amount in a lot of schools. Over the five years that I've been there, we've dwindled down to maybe five to 10, depending on the time of year, because we lose educators in the middle of the year. And something that I've noticed from my position as a Latina, as a light-skinned Latina, is definitely the pervasiveness of anti-Blackness in our schools and how this culture of anti-Blackness pushes out first and foremost Black educators from our school system and pushes them from school to school to school to school. Part of what I've noticed in my own experience as a Latina is that it's real easy to talk about educators of color, right? But it's not as easy to talk about some of the, um, the issues among educators of color at the center being anti-Blackness and how 
non-Black people of color can support and uplift Black educators in our schools. It's been a really, really challenging experience to learn that while also at the same time seeing Black educators leave the school because we all have played a role in that in one way or another. Especially as non-Black people, we've definitely played into the system in a lot of ways because our skin color gives us certain advantages and certain benefits that Black educators do not have. It's been a very rough road, and I don't know if my school in particular can recover from losing so many Black educators in such a a short amount of time. Those great points that you bring up. Brad, uh, is there something you wanted to say? I got a Starbucks card in the mail on the way to Stephanie. Ooh, she just hit the keep it real meter on a thousand. Hello, somebody. That's just the realness of it, right? And we see that play out through our students and again, through our educators as well. I just want to talk about a system, going back to your question, that is primarily made up of 80% white. We don't talk about that enough in school in terms of the opportunities for change. We need to be talking about teaching, being an administrator, wherever through our system, as really meaningful and Uh, you can make a really good living in these professions. And they're exceptionally rewarding and needed. And that's one of the ways in which we can start this. And secondly, too, is to have that level of accountability and expectation for our colleges. Because we love to talk about K-12 and what K-12 is doing around graduation. Well, we need to talk about what is that accepted into college and things like that look like, right? So there's this this through line of, um, of accountability And then we need to talk about these other groups like Denise was talking these affinity groups. Again, they're necessary because of the healing that needs to take place. Like to Stephanie's point, it is not just the grind of the job. It's the spiritual and emotional grind that people don't want to talk about. And look, everybody's head nodding. But those are the things that are absolutely a necessity. And so we have to put those things in place because what we do know is on this screen is nothing less than resilience, first and foremost. And so when we take care of that, they won't only take care of their business, they'll have the strength to open their door for another, right? And walk alongside and still have the patience, love for the white colleague that is saying, hey, I want to do better. And even have the patience and the push for those that says, hey, I'm not there yet. But all of that tends to rest on these faces within this. But I just, again, Stephanie, Yeah, Starbucks card coming. Amen. We keep it real. I accept with open arms. Thank you so much. (laughs) Brooke? Yes, Stephanie. Like, yes, snaps all around. And thank you, Brad, for adding that. I would add a barrier to retention and recruitment is trust. I think that in uh, the system growing up as a BIPOC student, you know, school worked for me and that I was the nerdy kid who, you know, the library was my favorite place in the summertime. Like it was popping. I was trying to read the most books in the city of Tacoma. You know, that was like my jam. I just was a nerd. I own that. And I love that about myself. But I saw that school didn't work for a lot of folks that look like me. And that's not to say I didn't feel like I belonged at school, even though I was that nerdy kid that always had a book with me. And by the way, I still always have a book with me. That hasn't changed. But when I was coming up through school, and I think as an educator, for sure, when I speak up, my voice is not trusted often. When I speak up and I share my truth, 
it's looked over, it's passed over. I worry about the message that not only sends to my colleagues, but what does that send to our students? And if that is happening to our colleagues of color, what is happening in our classrooms? And so to me, that when I think about the barriers, I think about how are we treating our BIPOC students? How is their experience? Because if anything, if we're trying to recruit and retain teachers of color, then it starts with the kids in our classrooms. It starts with how we treat and trust the young people and how we could develop them to even want to go into the field of teaching. And so really thinking about if we wanna make this profession something that is marketable to BIPOC folks, then we have to make school a place where they belong. We need to make school a place where they feel like they can grow into become who they wanna be. We spend so much time talking about what, but what if instead we really spent time developing the who, developing their character and, and figuring out who they want to become and whoever that is, is cool with us, right? And just that idea of just trusting, trusting people's experience, trusting when they feel like things are going on, that they need people to listen, they need support. And how often do we ask folks to tell us how they feel and then we don't do nothing with it? Like if we're going to ask folks, if we're going to harvest their stories, what are we doing then in turn to shift the way that we're showing up and what we're doing? That is so true. Tamasha, is there anything you'd like to add from your perspective as an administrator and a former teacher? Right. Yes. Everybody's right. And I want to just give an example talking about how the system needs to shift for us as opposed to us needing to shift for the system in a really specific way. At my school, we're dual language, right? So our students learn half the day in Espanol, half the day in English. And we do a lot of recruitment to our community because the reason why our school is chosen as a DL school, as a dual language school, is because we have a high population of folks around here that come from countries where they speak Spanish at home, right? And so it's like, great, like we're already serving. A lot of our kids come with this ability to be multilingual anyway. Why not infuse that in the academics? What happens though with our recruitment of educators is a lot of times the community that we serve the folks that are native Spanish speakers, like folks are saying, never felt welcomed at school. And on top of that, a lot of our immigrant staff don't feel comfortable in this country. They're like, oh, this space is not for me. And so it is our job to shift things, to make things more welcoming to our immigrant staff. That is absolutely huge, Tamasha. Thank you so much for sharing. I wanted to, can I add to what everyone has said to you, there's just Eileen. so, there's so many examples of institutionalized racism at every stage of an educator's pathway. So, you know, we talked about, you know, kids in classrooms. I feel like we talk about this in ECLC a lot where we, sometimes educators will say, oh, I can't make it. I, I don't want to leave my kids for the day. And I've said to educators, what your kids need is a thriving, happy, well educator of color in front of them, right? So I get that we, we put a lot of pressure on our educators to be in front of their kids every day. And that, that spiritual toll, if we're putting a, an unhappy and undervalued, exhausted, stressed out educator of color, the kids definitely see that. I was in a meeting with kids a couple of weeks ago, kids of color, talking to them about the need for educators of color. And they said to me, 
you need to get some support for our BIPOC teachers. You need to get some real support, like mental health support, well-being support, wellness support for our educators of color, because we see what this system's doing to them. Like a kid see this, you know, from an early age. So there's like all those aspects of the cultural piece. And then there's all these systemic pieces like Tamasha was naming, like those kinds of policies. Students of color are not graduating from college at the same rate as their white peers. They're not passing educator prep courses or certification classes or requirements at the same rate. Our bilingual, our multilingual educators have a harder time passing educator certification requirements. And it's like, this is a high need area, right? And we are locking out the people that we need the most in front of the kids who are part of this educational justice. So there's lots of opportunity for us to do policy change and policy work that will reflect our true values. Because when I talk to districts, they all say we want more educators of color, right? And what we have to do is actually change our policies to reflect those values and prioritize that if that's actually the case. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And so that's, I'm sure, where the educators of color leadership community comes in. So how does the ECLC support educators of color? Okay, wait, I'm jumping in on this one first. Yeah, Let me please tell do you. Tamasha. Okay, so as you know, we started as just a group of folks and we all got together the first day and looked around and we're like, what is this? What's this for? What are we doing? And that was incredible. Like just being able to be paid, have a sub in my class during the school day. This doesn't have to be work on me, right? That I have to go to before school or I have to go to after school. It was during the school day where I knew I could be fully present. And then it wasn't being led by someone who thinks they know what I need, but it was being led by us communally. So that's one thing. Another thing that was really incredible that I love sharing about is As a loud, bossy Black woman, I'm often shoved into leadership spaces without a lot of support. People are so excited. I think someone was talking about this. I think it was Brooke was talking about, people love to co-opt my story. I look so good on paper. So like, look, here's Tamasha. She's on the front page of our thing. She's Black and we like her. But then I'm there and I'm like, I'm not sure what to do. Like, what's the next step? And there's crickets. And so I fail because there's not support for me. In this space, Eileen, who I thought of as the leader at the time, I now know that this is a very collective space. At the time I was like, Eileen, I know her through when I was in high school. So I'm like, she's always, she's an adult who's in charge and I'm not. She asked me to help co-lead. And so I said, yes, because I'm always down for that. But then there was support there right away. There were other people there right away. And then when I stepped up to lead, Eileen stepped back. It was like, yeah, go for it. So I actually got to do the leading. It was not a puppet. It was not performative. It was really real. And when there were hard moments, when there were spaces where I could feel myself being like, I'm not sure what to do next, then somebody, often Eileen, stepped back up, right? So I was never alone, but I got the actual practice of really leading, not performative leadership. And the only reason that now today I'm an assistant principal at the school I used to teach at is because I had the actual practice to do real leadership that was authentic to who I am through ECLC. My principal program was fine. They said they were about racial justice. And I did read a whole bunch of papers about what it means to be Black. And that's cool. But the 
actual experience of being around people, talking about my true authentic self, practicing vulnerability in front of a hundred folks I do not know, I did not get that through my program. I got that through ECLC and it's made this wild first year of being a leader much better rooted and grounded because I know who I am and what I'm doing here. That's huge. Stephanie Brooke, what has been your experience with ACLC? ACLC is that tall glass of water that when I didn't know I was thirsty, y'all, like bell hooks. Yes. ACLC has been a place that has been just good for my soul. Like I've made friends, y'all. Like I've networked. I'm the teacher of the year this year, which is still hard for me to even imagine, but I wouldn't be here without the folks at ECLC. They are my mentors. They are folks that when I am struggling, I can give them a call. I can text. I can email. I mean, folks on this line, y'all know, they probably were like, maybe I shouldn't have given her my number because I'd be texting y'all. I'd be trying to get that feedback because one of the things that we struggle with well, I can only speak from my own experience as an educator of color, as a biracial black woman, is that I struggle with, am I doing this right? Wait, am I pushing too hard? Wait, am I not pushing enough? Wait, is this okay? Am I too much? Am I not enough? It is so important to have folks that can support you on that journey, not just to listen, but I've been there. Like, yes, let me share that experience with you. And to be able to be in a room that is full of not just BIPOC folks, but it's intergenerational. So I have been teaching for 15 years, so I am not a new teacher, but there's also teachers that have been in the field longer. There's folks that have administrative experience. There are younger teachers. And so one of the things that ECLC, one of the many things that I think is foundational is that we all have something to teach and we all have something to learn. And that there is no hierarchy of who has more or who has less, but we all got enough. We all got what we're supposed to have. And so the more that we can just show up and model that for our students, we do that at ECLC. And Eileen has shown us the way to just show up and be, I don't have to pretend who I am, but I just get to show up and just B, I get to listen, I get to learn, I get to share my own experience, and it doesn't stop there. That's the beautiful part. Like, it starts in the workday, you know, we're paid, it's supported, but then when we leave, we've created networks and friendships, collegial relationships where, you know, we connect outside of that. The momentum, the energy keeps going long after the day is over. It's changed my life, y'all. That sounds amazing. Stephanie. Yes, I would just love to add because I mean, Brooke is, I mean, she's preaching to the choir here because we all know and love ECLC. But the moment that I knew that I was in the right place was when Eileen said the words, this is an emergent space. Where she got that language from was from Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy. I had just gotten back from a solo trip to Europe and when ECLC started, and I was reading emergent strategy all throughout that trip. And so I was in this space of 
reflection and growth and coming to ECLC and hearing those words and recognizing that the space was not going to be structured in the typical way that educator of color spaces are structured, which is overly structured and way too academic or way too organized. Like that's just not real. It's just not real. And it doesn't allow for us to simply exist with one another. And I think what Brooke was pointing out was that the, I wouldn't call it a lack of structure because there's a structure, but the way it is, is like it it forms according to the need of the day. That is, I think, the most important part. I remember there was also one day where it was right after Brett Kavanaugh had been appointed to the Supreme Court. And I, as a survivor of sexual assault, came into that space after hearing the news that Brett Kavanaugh was appointed. And I was very upset. I was very emotional. And I felt so comfortable in that space. Keep in mind, I didn't know all these people, but I felt so comfortable in that space because I knew it was an emergent space. I knew it was a space full of love that I was able to share and speak on how I was feeling regarding his appointment. Not only was love received, but love was just felt all over on that specific day. And everybody recognized that that was something that we had to hold in the space because we have survivors of sexual assault in the space. Yeah, I just knew it was the right space when I heard emergent space. I got to say something about all of this as well, which is that they're all brilliant. Like, the, you know, I, I'm sure people listening to this are like thinking, these folks are amazing. There's so much brilliance in that room. There's so much talent. And what I think breaks my heart and should break everyone's heart is when they tell stories about how they don't feel heard or valued at their schools, because I can tell you, these are the educators our kids need. These are the educators our students of color need. These are the edu- educators our white kids need. These are like brilliant, compassionate, creative, dynamic, engaged, super transformative educators who are reimagining education every single day in ways that are relevant and are going to serve our kids in the ways we need them. I mean, I could tell you stories about all three of these folks and the dozens and dozens more that are in our group, examples of what amazing things they're doing that should be like celebrated all over our system. And another thing that I think I've really learned from them is that when we think about like PD, professional development, educators of color do not need the same kind of, I'm doing air quotes, equity professional development that white educators need. They don't need the 101. They really don't. They have so much fire and brilliance and passion. We just need to get out of the way and let them lead and let their voices be heard and let them teach because they're doing incredible things and our kids are are all thriving because of it and just wish that our systems were ones that were built to encourage that and to really lift up their voices and their talents and their passion. Yeah, educators of color benefit each and every student, and I just can't say that enough. So how can we scale the ECLC's work to support teachers of color and educators of color across the entire state? What are some of the opportunities and advocacy avenues that we can pursue? Boom, boom. (laughs) Because when I started, I was actually a principal at the time. I used to just stand by the door and listen in because, yeah, the big, bald, black man needed love. I was a principal. This is when it first started. And 
I was taking teachers there. But here's why it's not just important within the classroom. The reality is, if you ask any principal, any superintendent, any within central office, right? Policy hope, nine times out of 10, they've been a teacher. It is the epicenter of change. Like this is critical mass foundational one-on-one when we are talking about supporting and transforming a system. And I just love the fact, again, they talked about this place where they went that was first started with love and then right that other piece. So it's like when we think about being able to hold, lift up and show an appreciation for something so powerful. Again, this is hard for the system to understand and appreciate at the level that it is because they don't have that experience to what they were saying. But Tamasha is a great example, is a great example. Teacher turned admin, she no question she's going to transform. The other thing too that is important as we continue to grow is what we found and Eileen and I've been working with this is also our leaders of color need this. So think about this. Here you are a leader of color and to Brooke's point, now you're a principal, assistant principal, executive director in HR. Now your voice is sometimes even more of a solo voice. So we're working on things as well for leadership to provide support uh, for the Tamashas and still the Brooks. And, and when Eileen is looking to go and schedule these, well, guess what? She still has to work with central office. I mean, there's still opportunities for improvement. And that's why I'm saying we have to look at that whole uh, system but the foundational piece is no question ECLC loving what's happening and being intentional too, because this is, of course, we know a very, very female-centered profession. And what I appreciate is within ECLC, they've been inclusive and we find these men of color and they're thriving within this. And it is a need and it is very hard to find males of color. And through my entire career as a student, I didn't get that experience. And we still have folks that aren't getting that experience. So ECLC is a great place to bring in absolutely teachers of color, but it's also changing and incorporating the many male teachers out there that are waiting in ECLC as a receiver of that. So what are the levers to get more of this? Is it at the district level advocacy? Is it the state level? Are there opportunities for the federal funding coming from the American recovery plan that's coming? What can we do to have this everywhere? Yes to everything you just said. It's not an expensive program, but what it takes is value and it takes prioritization. It takes commitment. So One of the things that's a challenge often and that I actually think is really important is that when they come to ECLC, they come during their workday. As Tamasha shared earlier, that's important that we not, what I like to say to folks is like, we can't make educators kind of retain themselves, right? And if they're always having to do it after school on their own time, uncompensated in some cases, right, then there's a message about that, right? So having this opportunity that is part of the work day that's considered essential to your part of your work life, we have to prioritize that. We have to say our district really is actually interested in having more educators of color. It's that important, like the same way that we send teachers to a math conference, we send them to this conference that amplifies their voices and helps them build on the skills they have. That same lesson, I think, just gets replicated across all the other systems that we have. 
one of the big barriers for folks who want to become educators is finding that opportunity to do student teaching where, you know, if you want to do student teaching, you can't work. A lot of times you have to give up your wage earning job to do student teaching. So finding opportunities for people to support themselves while they do student teaching or to think differently about student teaching or to be more creative about student teaching, all of those kinds of things. I think as we talk about replicating it, I would encourage other ESDs or other districts or whoever to think about if this is actually a priority, then to make it a priority, what does that mean? Like we've got to put resource into it. We've got to put actual strength behind our words and say, it's got a line item for subs in our budget. We are going to protect subs for our teachers. We consider this essential professional learning. If we're ready to address those issues around, like if a white teacher says, where's the white educators group or say, why did educators color get something quote unquote special? To have the racial equity lens and knowledge and leadership to be able to say, this is an essential critical need for our district. And that's why we're putting this resource here. You will be able to list a hundred opportunities that white educators are getting. That's another thing we didn't talk about as explicitly, but one of the things I hear from the ECLC folks a lot is they don't get tapped. They don't hear about those opportunities. Nobody talks to them about, I think you should be an administrator. I think you should take the statewide committee position. I think you should apply for this program, right? Those are predominantly dominated by white educators. So having the ability to list out all the ways in which white educators are accessing support and the ways that educators of color are not, just be ready to have that conversation and to say, here's why this program, here's why this effort is necessary. And to say that the burden of retention, the work of retaining educators of color and recruiting and supporting educators of color should be on the district and not on the educators. I'll just add one more piece to that. Yeah, Uh, thanks, Brad. uh, Eileen was very much a part of the work within this region, and I was as well. When we were doing this work, we were looking at equity policies. This has to be a part of equity policies. Because if we're talking about changing outcomes, we also have to talk about the process. And if we're talking about improving the process, we have to have the people that we are looking to support to be part of the process. So to have policy without the engine that makes it go, i.e. people of color, to support that. I think it was Tamasha saying that it's great to go and read about it, but to have a place and have people within those work groups and leading some of these work and some of these policies, right? And again, it's not about being right. It's about saying, hey, what does the shift look like? And that is where this practice has to come in place, whether that's at the building level, whether that's where Denise is, you know, working with HR policies, or whether that looks like where I was, where you're supervising and supporting schools at a principal level and having these different conversations so that when Eileen is recruiting or looking for folks, there are places throughout the system where programs like this can get the traction it needs to get this type of process started, right? And we see this all the time. I think someone mentioned this earlier. Just presence alone can sometimes just open a door to get to that next level. I'm not saying that's it by within itself, just alone. And again, the other part that is, is missing, and this was to Stephanie's point, if we're going into a school and all we have is one solo administrator or one solo teacher of color, we have to stop pretending and stop saying things like, oh, 
we have diversity. Diversity is completely different than inclusion. We fall in love with the checkbox of we have one here, we have one there, and still we have these same uncomfortable mm-hmm. like what's wrong, right? And oftentimes to the point to someone else made, it's like, oh, okay, well, we'll have this person lead this equity work. Or we want to change our discipline policies, right? We don't suspend, but we'll just put them in this room. But anyway, that is the type of work and that is the type of necessity we need when we're still talking about changing the system and creating those spaces is they have to be in, in that process. Yeah, thanks, Can Brad. I just Denise, add yeah. oh, a perspective to that that we haven't talked about? And so um, one of my other roles is I'm actually president of the Kent School Board. It has to start. I mean, when you're talking about leadership, it's got to actually start at the school board level because we approve and, and write. That's what that's the job, one of the jobs of the school board. And I have to share from my own experience, it is extremely difficult because some of these racist actions and, and things that are existing within our districts also are existing on my board. And I've been the person to call it out and other people have called it out. So we have to take it all the way to the top of the leadership chain and make sure that, you know, yes, we've got these policies, but if they're not even being adhered to or supported by the boards, then right? What does that look like trickling down? When you see, when you see those struggles in leadership at that level, we realize that the problem is it needs to be addressed there. So school boards are responsible for developing policy, passing policy, approving policy. That's one of the places we haven't talked about. And so I can say again, in my own experience, it needs to be just as important there. And oftentimes boards don't look very diverse, right? But I understand why. And I'm, I'm coming to the end of my four-year term and I'm not running again. And there's lots of reasons for that. So I'm just saying it is a challenge. You know, if it's a challenge at that level of leadership, it's going to be a challenge coming all the way down. So just wanted to share that because that is an important piece that we haven't really talked about. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Is there anything that could be done at the state level? Could a state policy somehow advance educator diversity? And what would that look like if there was such a thing? You know, I'm really excited to talk about this because I think that we think so deeply about our hierarchical structures. And I was thinking about this uh, when Ms. Denise was just talking, right? And this idea of like, like that's that's true in Highline too. We see that across the state, right? That we, at each level of the hierarchy, there is deep work to be done. There's, of course, policies and procedures can happen. Like what Eileen was talking about, like let's set aside sub time let's make it easier for folks that are already teaching around the world to come teach here and not have to redo four years of school. And then that unpaid student teaching, right? Like there's all those sorts of policies, but also the hearts and minds of the people writing the policy. Because I'm here, I'm not new to thinking. I'm not the first person who got into student teaching and was like, this is unsustainable. I am hungry, right? Like we all have gone through that. We all know student teaching is unsustainable. And yet here it is the same as it's always been, always unsustainable. Absolutely, policies and procedures could happen that would change at the state level to make things easier. But what's most important is the hearts and minds of the people who are doing the work. Because if their hearts and minds are not in it, then it doesn't matter what their policy or procedure is. And what that's going to take is a really difficult step, something I'm learning a lot as a new leader. I'm searching at all y'all out here been in leadership positions. Feel free to connect with me after. I would love to talk more because you're right. It is lonely up here as a Black woman 
right? But as a leader, I'm recognizing that if teachers come up with a good, smart solution that centers kids, but they didn't run it by the right people, hands get slapped, wrists get slapped. But it's like, can we pause and not be too defensive before we get mad that they didn't go the correct route, that they didn't follow the hierarchy? Can we look at the solution and see if it's good? If it is, why don't we, instead of saying, you should have asked me first, what if instead we said, thank you so much for being so creative? Good for you for not following a system. We are so excited to wrap around this idea. Is that not exactly what's happening with ECLC, right? Folks were so upset that we were going, so upset that we were taking subs. And suddenly they're like, wait a minute, we want to do this at the district level. And it's like, oh yeah, for real? And it's that defensiveness, right? This idea of like, we have to protect the hierarchy. We have to protect the positionality. And I fall into that too, right? Because I've been questioned my whole life as a young person, as a black person, like, should you be in that leadership? I don't know if I trust you. And so I do get defensive when someone steps over me or goes above my head. But if it's in service of kids, if it's in service of what's right, we have to let that go. So I can think of a million policies and procedures that we could do. So could a lot of folks. We just need to do it. And what's stopping is the hearts and minds. There's something protecting the hierarchy. There's something protecting, well, I had to go through student teaching, so you have to too. Well, I had to go get my teaching cert over again, even though I was teaching Guatemala, you should too, right? There's all that protectiveness and defensiveness. And that's a heart and mind thing, not a policy thing. Tamasha Amedi is the assistant principal at Hazel Valley Elementary School in the Highland School District. Stephanie Gallardo is a social studies teacher at Foster High School in the Tukwila School District. Brooke Brown is the 2021 Washington State Teacher of the Year at Washington High School in the Franklin Pierce School District. Denise Daniels is the director of recruitment, retention, and workforce development in the Auburn School District. Brad Brown is the executive director of kindergarten through post-secondary at the Puget Sound Educational Service District. And Eileen Yoshina is the Director of Equity and Education at the Puget Sound Educational Service District. Eileen, Brad, Brooke, Stephanie, Denise, Tamasha, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about League of Education Voters or support our work, just visit our website, educationvoters.org.